I like how we're both tweeting during this one. At least we're, <laughs> at least we're both being rude to each other at roughly the same degree. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 96. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And just the two of us uh, today, again, uh, Lisa, Leanne just uh, taking a, another quick break. We're all, um, we've all got quite a fair bit on. This has been one of the busiest uh, sort of mm-hmm. January, February marches we've had in quite a while, but the episodes continue to roll on. We just, I think we're just, at this point, we just want to hit the 100, don't we? So I think we're... Yeah, but look, remember when there's only two of us, it doesn't mean that the third one hasn't contributed immensely of to the content that's not. going to cover. Of course we, not. We, um, I don't know if our leaders know or if I tell them, if we'll be accused of bantering, but we kind of have about 10 emails a day around various <laughs> things. <laughs> Usually try to decide what the topic of that night is going to be as we're, just as we're about to record. <laughs> it's very, very organised professional podcast, as, as regular listeners will know. Um, but the, the, the main topic for... Liam, you what? know what? It actually is. I listened to an episode that I wasn't part of the other day, and I was impressed at how professional it sounded. You have no idea how much that touched my heart. You, Lisa, famously do not listen to podcasts, including this one, which, um, you know, I, I make sure I do not take personally. But you, you listened to an entire episode. So that was very... It touched my heart deeply, Lisa. Thank I you. was stuck in a traffic jam that lasted... <laughs> Well, about an hour, so it fitted in perfectly. But no, I was really impressed. I don't know whether I bring the tone down when I'm on, but you two sounded really professional and as if you knew your stuff. And it was entertaining and, you know, informative. And I was impressed. All right. Well, Lisa, leave a review on the Apple Podcast Store, please. That <laughs> definitely help our rankings. Um, so I the... want to see the forest out of school hours, Kessels. Well, if you're ever, they love visitors. So if, if you're ever in, uh, if you're ever in Canberra, they would be delighted to have you. And they're they're, they're listeners to the show as well, so they would um, they would love to attach your face to the voice. I'm sure. <laughs> so... So the main topic for tonight will be looking at the uh, the ANAO is conducting a review into the uh, the childcare package essentially. So um, you've got to tell listeners who the ANAO is. So the ANAO, the ANAO, it's like us that know that it's a hard uh, acronym, ANAO, but it's the Australian National Audit Office. So uh, it's like the it's like it's like the bureaucrats who watch the bureaucrats. That's imagine the parties of the ANAO. They must be. <laughs> Absolutely insane, um, but they yeah they're essentially you know provide you know oversight and and review of of, of yeah, the implementation of particular things and government policy and government bureaucracy. But obviously the childcare package you know we've spent quite a lot of time on the podcast talking about it. I'm sure there'll be some listeners who will see the title of this episode and go oh my god not the package again. But is huge part of the policy of the sector, and we do think it's worth you know, occasionally checking in. But the ANAO will be conducting uh, an audit into that, and we decided to approach the episode a little bit differently. And um, we're going to be featuring some interviews with with um, with, a, with a range of stakeholders in, in different areas who have slightly different experiences of the implementation of the package. We thought it might be good to get a bit of a breadth of views. We also think we probably talked about it a lot over the course of the last ninety five episodes. So I don't think we really need to stake our position on the package or the subsidy again. Um, and this, you know, would kind of stand. We've, we've, we've now got a bit of a tradition of contributing to uh, reviews and contributing to um, consultations via podcast form. So this will kind of form our, uh, our audio submission to this review. I think that's the idea, isn't it, Lisa? It sure is. And one of the things um, about the the review is that it's not actually into – it's not a review of the actual policy. 
um, it's a review into how the policy was implemented. Look, one of the things that Leanne, who's actually studied public policy and done her master's on it, um, always has explained to me is the impact of a policy can be determined as much by the actual policy that's decided by the government as by its implementation, which is how it's rolled out by the bureaucracy. And um, I saw that really clearly once in a policy um, in the implementation of the, uh, oh, was it the childcare benefit? Gee, are we going back that long? Was it the childcare benefit? Now I can't remember. But I know that the head bureaucrat that was responsible for rolling that out, I'm really not sure what policy it was, but it involved... So the CCMS, the Child Care Management System? Yes, it was the CCMS. Thank you. Sorry. I completely lost it there. She sent all of her team to the furthest reaches of Australia so that they could sit there in a childcare centre for a day and watch things like what the internet speed was like or watch what it was actually like in really rural and remote communities and explain to them that they had to be able to, you know, access this um, CCMS system as much as anyone else. And it was the most painless rollout of any policy because they'd absolutely taken everything into account because they had that really good knowledge. So I've always been aware that, um, you know, the implementation of a policy is really important. So I want to know what people think about the policy. Mm, I think it'll be fascinating because I think, you know, I think to be to be fair, we spent a lot of the time in talking about the lead up to the implementation of the subsidy, thinking that it was likely that the IT system would really struggle. I think we can say the IT system seemed to hold up relatively well. Uh, what I'm interested in, I think, is particularly the uh, the management of the additional childcare subsidy, I know has been problematic. And speaking from experience, um, working in a in an operations capacity for a early childhood organisation, the ACT, that's been really problematic. Uh, but also just where, you know, we're finding... You know, a lot of issues now where there are just seem to be some very strange uh, decisions being made by Centrelink that have pretty dramatic impacts on families very, very quickly. But um, it'll be interesting to see if some of those sort of things are called out. But that'll be the main topic. So we've got a couple of things just to get through in our little intro section. Um, I just want to remind everyone that our Exploring the NQS series is continuing. So that series is available as a big thank you to those who support us on Patreon. So I hope people are enjoying uh, that series. The overview episode of Quality Area 2 is now up. So um, I broke my 15-minute limit to that one because it was a bit too hard to to cram it all in. But um, really good, you know, quick 17-minute summary of uh, Quality Area 2 and and what uh, services and and, uh, nominated supervisors in particular should focus on. And then... I just want to say that uh, next week, uh, as you listen to this, will be the Early Childhood Learning and Development Conference in Perth, and I'll be there for quite a few of the days. So if there are only listeners to the show there, um, come along to my session. It'll be great. Uh, but also, you know, just come up and say hi. I promise uh, to be very nice and, and be very uh, awkward and, and grateful that you like the show and continue to listen. For sure. Uh, we also then wanted to we, – we had debated doing an entire episode on this, but we just thought we probably didn't have the, the stamina or the desire to look at uh, some of the craziness that's happening in the New South Wales election. But that that is taking place uh, – if you're listening to this on the Friday as it comes out, the election will be tomorrow. Uh, Lisa and Leanne are both obviously New South Wales based and have a you – know, So we get to have an election sausage, a democracy, democracy sausage. Democracy sausage, very exciting. Do they have any vegan, vegetarian options for people like uh, me? Yes, they do because Wonderful. I actually don't eat – 
Me too, either, so yes. Excellent. <laughs> but I, I tend to buy cakes for the cake stall. Ah, yeah. I like school. cakes. Fair enough. So yeah. what we thought we'd do, look, is probably we, we have uh, talked a little bit about some of the issues over the last little while, but I think, you know, Lisa and Leanne are both, um, we have you here tonight, Lisa, but Leanne as well, both have such a, a strong history of advocacy and policy engagement in the New South Wales system particularly. So it would be kind of madness not to have, you know, at least a brief, you know, five-minute chat about, you know, this election and what it means for early childhood. So did you want to... <laughs> Lisa, if you're not interested in this, how can we expect the listeners to be? <laughs> Give us a real quick summary. What, what, what's the, what are we talking about here for early childhood? Yes. Look, it's really hard to give a summary um, because, like, essentially Labor's come out with a policy that says they'll give $500 million more money towards early education and care, including some for um, out-of-school hours care. And it sounds like a really good policy and I'm sure it would be a good policy and it's got lots of really nice things in it like more capital um, funding and, um, yeah, yeah, lots of really nice things in it. And I think it would be a really good policy. It is predicated, though, on the fact that they're giving an extra $90 million from the New South Wales government if they become the New South Wales government. And the rest of the, the money would come from um, federal labour if they get in. And they haven't actually said what will happen if, you know, if they don't, if federal labour don't get in. Do we only get the $90 million? What happens to the rest of it? Um, but some bits of it, you know, are definitely good. They've said they'll double the amount of money. I, I, I think we've spoken about the fact how um, the coalition in New South Wales have said that they'll fund three-year-olds to go to preschools, but you get kind of like 20 cents a child for the next few years before it goes up to something that's actually worthwhile um, uh, receiving. And Labor said that they'll double that 20 cents a child to 40 cents a child. I'm making up those figures. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, they've said that. The... Um, a few days after the Labor had announced their policy, the um, Libs came out and announced their policy um, and we've also spoken about my concerns about part of that, the out-of-school hours care one, because they hadn't actually spent the money that they said they'd spend um in the last election, so why should we believe in this election? And we should say, actually, you had a great article posted in Fairfax, but we linked to it last week. But um, yeah. you can go back and see the notes for last week's episode. Um, yeah, but you, you tackled that issue really well in that Yeah. Piece. But, you know, basically it's really hard to tell, you know, like, um, like it's all just, it's just numbers plucked out of the air and put on a paper at this stage. You know, it doesn't necessarily... Um, uh, mean anything. The Budget Review Office has gone through both policies and um, I think what it comes down to, uh, you know, is that um, the bottom line, um, the Liberals, the, the Budget Office has said that Liberals have promised $20 million over four years for preschool and $90 million for out-of-school hours care, and Labor's promised $34.5 million 
for out-of-school hours care and 90 million over four years for um, early education, that's preschools and long day care services. But even those figures, you know, like it's it's like we have such a history in New South Wales of people promising things and not doing it that I really wouldn't want to um, base one's vote on what's been promised. I would base one's vote on the fact that despite the fact that in some ways the coalition has increased funding and has ensured that more children are getting access to early education over the last few years, they also didn't spend the universal access from the federal government for quite a few years. And generally they have not been a friend of the early education and care sector despite their rhetoric. And, yeah, that's kind of as close as I can say. And I I know that all sounds like so confusing. Why can't you say one's great and one's not? Well, my gut instinct says that the Labor policy is a lot closer to what we want, um, partially because the uh, opposition spokesperson, Kate Washington, has really listened to the sector and has really got a clear understanding of what um, the sector has been saying to her. Wonderful. Well, if you are in New South Wales, uh, enjoy your democracy sausage. Um, you know, look look carefully at the policies. They are, I don't know, I live in the ACT and I always find New South Wales politics full stop confusing, but particularly early education uh, approach is the kind of madness. We have a much, uh, has, have, have our own issues here in the ACT, but we have a much simpler approach in terms of funding, you know, preschools and, and those kind of things. So uh, hats off to Lisa for attempting to navigate us through that complexity there yeah probably very badly and i'll probably have alienated both sides of the politics so i hope that um neither of the politicians have actually um yeah heard heard me giving that breakdown <laughs> well, it's out the day before anyway so i don't think yep. uh, anyone will be, be basing too much on what we're saying but again if you you know but obviously particularly if you hold yourself up as an advocate and activist you know the best the, the most power we have in our democracy is is at the ballot box so make sure you're really thinking about what that vote is wherever you choose to go um we will uh we'll leave it there because we want to get on to the to our main uh, range of interviews um for tonight lisa did you want to give you know a really brief intro to, to all of them in general was there a particular were there particular questions you were asking of all the of all the people Look, I, I mostly asked them what was the implementation of the policy like for them and um, did they did they find it an easier transition or an easier um, uh, thing to put into their services than um, previous um, yeah previous policies such as the national quality framework and the uh, the um, CCB, which was way back in 2000. Were you alive in 2000, Liam? I was, Lisa. I was probably, oh, what, in year, year eight or year nine oh, or something? Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but already an activist, I will say. But um, we... But, but yes, look, we'll... one of the things that I think is really important, and because this is um, part of our submission to that inquiry, that I just want to say loud and clear... As someone that has um, written a lot of resources for the sector over the years, as someone that um, has helped 
helped write professional development and resources for the sector to understand new government policies. I was really aware that the sector was flying blind on this without um, things like the professional support coordinators to assist them through the process. And I think that that is something that um, I'd be very surprised if the ANAO didn't pick them up on it. The, the stupidity of defunding what was a quite well-established um, system for assisting the early education and care sector to um, respond to new policy changes just prior to introducing something of this magnitude. Yes, yet an, yet another reason to uh, to mourn the loss of the, the PSEs, which, which I don't think we'll ever stop doing on this podcast. The other probably quick thing we do is maybe a bit of intros to say, look, we've, we've got a range of interviews here. We we sort of made an attempt as best as possible to get as diverse a view as possible. Um, a lot of that was obviously dependent on who was available, who was, um, who was able to speak to us. So we, we, we know we haven't covered you know every part of the very complex and diverse sector we work in. So um, we hope you enjoy this range of views. But, you know, if you feel like a particular view was missed out on or there was a particular, um, you know, you... you you had look please get in touch with us you know on our facebook or or twitter pages we'd love to um to hear the experiences of other people but let's take a really quick break and then we'll be back with the uh, the interviews conducted around the implementation of the childcare package and the review by the anao so stay with us So I have with me here John Cherry, Advocacy Manager from Good Start Early Learning. Welcome to the podcast, John. How are you? Excellent. Thanks, Lisa. A bit hot. We've got no air conditioning today. Oh, no. Um, the, the day we're recording this is 32 in Sydney. Is it that hot up there as well? 39 predicted today. Oh, I'm sorry for you. Okay, we'll try and make it as quickly as possible then. So talk to me about the childcare package, the implementation of the childcare package. Has it worked for Good Start, for your families, for your staff? What's worked well, what's worked badly? It's been a huge exercise for Good Start. We put together an internal project team about six months out to start preparing for it. Um, Probably for the majority of our families, probably upwards of 80%, it was a pretty smooth transition. But we've certainly had some real difficulties trying to get our children on additional childcare support across to the new system, and that's really been driving us crazy. But for the probably about 80% of the families, particularly working uh, families, uh, their transition generally was fairly smooth, and most of those families ended up better off, and we've seen some increases in days booked as a result. But we, we, we certainly had a lot of transitional issues around the preschool exemption, uh, which has been largely resolved now, uh, and a lot of... Uh, ongoing issues around additional childcare support. So what were the issues around the exemption and around ACTS? Well, in terms of preschool exemption, I think that uh, it, it was that the, the original system designed by Centrelink just didn't work. A lot of parents weren't aware of it. They weren't being told by Centrelink that they were entitled to a preschool exemption. And we, and we had you know, uh, tens of thousands of families being told that they, uh, that they weren't eligible for any childcare subsidy when in fact they were because their child was going into a preschool program. Eventually the government put in a fix that they sent a letter out, you might remember the day before, the week before the childcare subsidy was due to take effect to every family who might have had a preschool child and said, hang on, you guys are all entitled to an exemption. 
and since then we've seen a, a couple of fixes done to the Centrelink processing, so things have improved there. And what about Axe? Axe has just been a, a dog's breakfast and continues to be so. We still have some families who haven't even transitioned across to additional childcare support, child wellbeing. And the frustrating thing for us is we were saying to the government from months out that uh, we have to make sure that the transition of these children is smooth because these are the most vulnerable children in the entire system. Yeah. And it simply hasn't happened. And uh, what do you think could have happened to have made it more smoother? Look, there, there were uh, better training of, of settling staff would have helped and much more... Um, a, a determined attitude from government to Centrelink to say, look, these kids uh, bust every gut, you know, um, you know, uh, cross every bridge, make sure these kids are looked after. Uh, instead, we had, you know, applications being refused because they weren't in the right uh, file format or, uh, you know, for other silly reasons. Um, well, what we, we needed was an absolute commitment from government that these kids were going to be looked after, and, and that's not what has happened. Yeah, and do you think that that was because, you know, the government was following, uh, like the department was following, or the departments were following policy, or do you think it was a policy failure there? There's a little bit of policy failure, but uh, I'd have to say the Department of Education's policy objective was they had a safety net, these children should be picked up, and for some strange reason the processes designed by Centrelink didn't reflect the policy objectives of the Education Department. Uh, they just didn't seem to get the memo on, on additional childcare support. Yeah. Uh, it's been a long process trying to work it through, and, and what we've found is if we raise individual cases with the Department of Education, they be- then become our champions going back to sort things out with Centrelink. I've heard that from a few people, yeah. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, yeah, because the small services obviously don't have the same access to the department that big players like you guys do. Well, well, that's right, and, and certainly uh, the the, uh, the CCS helpline has improved considerably, um, and um, uh, providers who ring that helpline ordinarily will, will now get their issues resolved. We've had some really big issues resolved just by raising through the helpline. Oh, that's good to hear. And um, like compared to other changes that have been brought in, like the NQF, how do you think the policy implementation of this one, or the implementation of the policy of this one, compares? Things like communication, you know? Um, I, I think the Department, uh, Department of Education tried really, really hard. One of the com- complexities of this was there were three agencies, three departments involved, and that added a level of complication that, uh, that it's still being worked through, uh, whereas the NQF was essentially only the, the Federal uh, Department and, of course, the state agencies. Um, some of the issues, we've had problems with the NQF in terms of consistency uh, between... Jurisdictions, we're now having some of those inconsistency problems within central league assessment offices. Um, but uh, but uh, I think it went much smoother than what um, you know old wise heads tell me about the uh, childcare benefit back in 2001, which is the last big change. Because in that case, uh, you may recall the IT system um, actually collapsed, uh, and we didn't have that occur this time. The department was absolutely determined that the IT system would work on day one, and uh, it did. Yeah. Um, and um, they've been quite open to raising issues all the way through. Uh, can't complain about uh, lines of communication, um, but uh, it, it, it has been a huge exercise. What about communication to families? From government? Yeah. I, I, 
I thought their, their, their comms, you know, the, the, the TV advertising was pretty poorly targeted. Uh, if there was a criticism I'd have, it was the government didn't ever at any point really sit down and have a proper conversation with the sector about what the communications task was and how that could, could best be achieved. Uh, what we did in good start is, is we developed our own tools to go out to our, to our families. Yeah. Um, we developed our own estimator because the government's estimator was too hard to use. We built our own, uh, and we had something like something like four hundred thousand families um, uh, use our estimator, which is interesting. We've only got seventy thousand families, so it shows you there was absolutely a demand for that information. Uh, we built our own modelling tools. We built our own comms. Uh, and we, we said to every one of our centre directors, you have to have a conversation with every single one of your parents. So, um, John, this huge... must have cost Goodstart a hell of a lot of money. It, it, it was a huge exercise. We had a, a huge training program for our centre directors. Uh, we had a project team that was running, as I said, for six months in the lead-up to it. Um, it. We were determined that we would do everything we could to make sure it was successful. Okay, I think um, you know that that's kind of where some of this comes down to the difference in size because of the size of you guys, you could afford that money and you could do that training, etc. And possibly not everyone has that. But look, thank you. I think that's you know that's pretty much. I think a lot of people would agree with the points that you've made there, and I hope we can all make those points to the review. Oh, absolutely. The, re- the review is crucial. Uh, and we've got two reviews, of course. We've got the evaluation of CCS going on, and now we've got the audit the general's performance audit. So we've got a couple of chances to, to express our views, plus the federal election, of course. <laughs> yeah, and some of us will definitely be taking that opportunity. Okay, thanks a lot, John. Thanks, Lisa. And now I have with me Janet Coleman from Coffs Harbour Family Daycare. Hello, Janet, and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good morning, Lisa. Thank you. (laughs) Can I just ask, how long have you been in your position? Uh, In my current position, I've been here for nine years, but I've been at Coffs Harbour Family Daycare for 21 years. So you really understand family daycare, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm certainly trying to. It keeps changing, Lisa. For sure it does. Okay, so tell us about Coffs Harbour Family Daycare's, you know, um, experience of the childcare subsidy implementation. How did it go? What worked well? What didn't? Okay, I think, well, I think for family daycare there were some implications in the transition that perhaps um, may have been a little bit different for other service types. Um, firstly, all of our uh, staff and management and then all the educators in family daycare needed to have uh, proto registrations. So for huge services, that might have meant 200 educators having to have proto registrations in order for children's enrolments to be linked to them. Uh, I think this was uh, something that was unable to be forecasted as to how difficult that might be for uh, some educators trying to get that registration, people with varying computer skills, many having to pay for copies of birth certificates and marriage certificates in order to complete the registration. So some of even some of our educators in our smaller service was, had still not completed 
the PRODA registration process prior to the rollover into the childcare subsidy. So for us that then meant that we uh, could not actually enrol the children that were had contracts with those educators until that was done. So there was a little bit of a delay in those first few weeks. And I would imagine for family daycare services that have a huge number of educators, that might have been uh, quite, a, quite a huge task to try and get things happening. Um, the childcare enrolment process, <clears throat> I think is a good process, but in the initial stages, because those uh, the communication with families about how they completed their childcare subsidy claim and how that was to uh, pan out in the real world in family daycare um, was basically left uh, from, from our services perspective up to us to communicate that with families. So whilst the government initiated an extensive advertising campaign regarding the childcare subsidy, it was in fact relying on the services and the family daycare educators really to communicate with families on how to complete that and to confirm the complying written agreements and confirm enrolments on the MyGov. And so basically what you're telling me is both of those processes, the PRODA thing plus just enrolling families and getting complying written agreements took up a, a, a huge amount of extra staff time for your service. Absolutely. And, and the problem for us was that because in, in family daycare services we don't necessarily have that face-to-face contact with families, yep. is that uh, the process was relying on our educators understanding what families needed to do and the electronic communications from the services. And because we couldn't actually see how this system was going to happen until it existed, yep. um, it was difficult for us to try and communicate what we needed to for families. Can I ask what um, third-party software you're using? Yes, we're using uh, Harmony, third-party software. And that's a fairly common one for family daycare services? Yes, and many family daycare services have been using Harmony for a lot of years. Right, and you are happy with the support that they gave you and with their readiness for the transition? Oh, well, I'm happy with Harmony, but I think that the transition to the childcare subsidy was uh, very difficult for everybody, not only Harmony, but every other third-party software provider. Um, I think that the time frames of, first of all, the, service pro- the third-party providers had to be uh, approved. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure whether there was enough time for testing. I don't, I don't know what happened in that process. But I think that uh, in, those, in that initial transition phase, um, the CCS help desk was very helpful, but they were totally understaffed to handle calls. And third-party providers, including ours, were basically non-contactable in the first two or three weeks once everybody realised the, the size of this whole change. Yeah, I think... Um, it- Everyone experienced frustration, no matter who the software provider was. At That's that exactly stage. right. Yeah. I, I think, in hindsight, but I'm only I'm not speaking having all the knowledge. Is that the rollout was planned and, and there were timeframes put in place, but I think the enormity of the whole process um, may not have had enough testing or things set in place early. So am I right then, you know, um, if I say the main two things that affected you was the communication from the department 
to families needed to be more about the actual process and there were um, just the additional ask on family daycare services of getting educators, those proto numbers was too hard. Yes, yes. The proto, the proto system was difficult and I, had we known beforehand and had several months to prepare to say to educators in order to complete this registration, you, you, there's all likelihood that you're going to need to have copies of this and this, then they would have already had their birth certificates and marriage certificates. But in that process to try and complete the registration, then to go back and obtain all of those certificates in order to finalise it was just a whole delay. Okay, last question, because as I explained, they're just quick interviews that we're doing with a number of people here. Compared to other things that have happened, like, say, the introduction of the NQF or the introduction of the CCB, did child, the introduction of the childcare subsidy in the package go fast, better or worse? Uh, I think it wasn't as smooth a transition as the other processes that I've seen, and I've seen a fair few in my time. Yeah. Um, I think the enormity of the change... And the change on the focus uh, was was significant and the fact that software had to be totally changed and the way that parents, educators and staff saw the whole subsidy functioning and the activity test was so significant that we, we couldn't have really foreseen the enormity of it. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, well, thank you much for that. Um, is there anything else you want to say? Uh, no, I, I think um, I'm, I'm really happy with what the uh, the CCS subsidy is designed to achieve, um, and it, it is certainly improving. We are still we're nine months into the process yet, and there's probably still some fine tuning to happen. But um, I think that eventually we'll get there. <laughs> That's good. Can I just ask very quickly? I just thought of something. Acts, um, have you had any problems uh, at? You know, with the processes around additional childcare subsidies and Centrelink. I think that anyone who's had to deal with ACTS um, has had some issues. The people that, that are helping resolve those problems have been exceptional under all those circumstances. Um, but I, there's been a whole lot of issues around the percentage of your services that's using ACTS and how that's being represented. So... It's better now than what it was, but um, they're very understanding that there's some, something not right in the background and they are they are attempting to fix it. So I'm finding the staff very helpful in that process. Oh, that's great. Okay, thank you much, Lee Janet, for being part of the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. You're listening to The Early Education Show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about this episode and all of the previous episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. And now we have Carl... Carl Hessian, is that how you pronounce your name, Carl? You'd think as a friend of the podcast I'd have the pronunciation of your name right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's spot on, Lisa. How are you? I'm good. And Carl's a, um, a software provider, so one of the third-party software providers that had to get new software ready for the childcare subsidy system. So, Carl, tell us, you know, from your perspective, 
was it a good policy implementation or was it not so good? I'll look very briefly as an overview, a mixed bag. I think if you were a family and a service which had fairly straightforward needs and requirements, you were probably fine. Um, anything outside the straight and narrow, you probably ran into challenges. And that's a very good comment, but that's a fairly accurate summation in my view. Um, and for today, what I thought I would do is just uh, drop through uh, four areas where there were some issues with IT with respect to uh, legislation or, or policy. Um, so I'm happy to talk about those if you like. Yep, for sure. Sounds perfect. Okay. I might just jump on in there and talk about um, enrolments, specifically ceased enrolments. So you might recall that under the legislation, when an enrolment finishes, it has to have an end date put against it. And one of the immediate challenges we found directly after transition was that once an enrolment was in a state of being ceased, that is to say ended, the service couldn't update the enrolment. Yeah. So there was a specific challenge there. If, if, a, if an enrolment had been created as an informal enrolment, so to speak, that is without CRNs on it, then the service wasn't able to come back and put those CRNs on directly because the IT system wouldn't support that update, which was a bit of a challenge because not only does it mean that the service would be in contravention of Section 200D of legislation, it also meant, in that specific example, a family wouldn't be able to get their entitlement coming to them. Right. So that was a, that was a, that was a, uh, a significant challenge upon um, transition because what it meant was where an informal enrolment had been created, we had to call upon the goodwill and the support of DHS to get um, CRNs put onto those records um, behind the scenes and then have the families um, confirm those and that turned out to be a further challenge because my gov wasn't set up to be able to confirm enrolments which had already ended or already been ceased so there was, a, there was a long cascade of events there finally culminating in the fact that once ceased enrolments had been updated with CRNs and then confirmed by families the automatic session reporting wasn't being triggered either um, to go back and sort out entitlement calculations um, and that whole scenario, I suppose, dragged on for several months um, on, on transition, and it wasn't until, I think, December when services had the ability to be able to update uh, enrolments themselves. That's not good. I can see the problems that that would have caused. What else? Um, well, since October, um, the department has been going through and ceasing enrolments after eight weeks. You might recall under legislation that um, where eight weeks have passed since the child last attended, then the child is deemed to be no longer enrolled. So there's a job or a task which runs, I think it's daily, which is scanning for situations where children haven't attended for the last eight weeks and when it finds them, it ends the enrolment. I think this has caught services on the back foot for three reasons. One is that the job that runs doesn't align with calendar weeks. If yep. the day that the last child was attended was a Tuesday, then the job would run eight weeks later on the Tuesday. Um, another reason that's become problematic is it doesn't take into account service closure periods, say over the Christmas break. And a third reason, which is particularly troubling, is it doesn't take into account unsubmitted sessions of care, the most recent unsubmitted sessions of care. So, for example, if a service hasn't submitted the most recent week at the time that the job runs, then the job will treat that as being a not attendance, even though the service isn't contravened any of its um, session of care reporting. 
And Carl, my understanding that this is a particular issue for out-of-school hours care services um, because they may have children coming in vacation care periods only and if, you know, if there's bigger than eight weeks between two vacation periods, then every child is automatically unenrolled. Well, that's correct. But I'd make a note that that was baked into the system, and, and we knew that before it started. Um, but it, it still doesn't make it any easier to deal with, does it? It doesn't. No, not at all. I agree. It's just more a case of that's actually the system behaving as per as per the policy, shall we say? Um, oh, there's my alarm going off. Sorry, Lisa. That was my five minute warning. So I'm clearly over the over, over the limit right from the start. <laughs> um, but just just to quickly finish on that, I suppose um, where it becomes. Uh, I guess a, a, a challenge for me is that if this, if the service uh, service has got the ability to be able to send a submit session reports up to 14 days after the week in which the care was submitted, then I don't see how the session um, the, the the job that's running to cease these enrolments really should be running until the services have the opportunity to submit all of the sessions of care. Otherwise, sure. the job might be running based upon six weeks worth of data, for example, not eight weeks. Yeah. So it's a bit of a challenge there. Um, just briefly, one of the one of the challenges that came to light in December was the fact that the department had been paying out on more than forty two absences by mistake, um, which is you know contravention of the legislation. Um, and I think when that was discovered, sorry, I'm not understanding it. They'd been paying out what? Oh, you know how a, a child can have up to forty two sessions. Absences. Absences. absences, yep. Yeah. Well, the department had been running on and paying above that. Ooh. So for example, reporting 43 or 44 days of the sessions of care, they're paying out on that. And the services were in situations where, if that had happened, where they were being forced to take the overpayments, they had no way of being able to say, don't pay us the money, you know? And, of course, at a later stage, when DHS realised that, they um, recovered the cash from services. Right. I, I mentioned that specifically, even though it's not a huge issue, because it's kind of an example of the sort of moral hazard which crept into the way the system was rolled out, you know, um, that had kind of uh, pushed out the risk onto services in that regard. Um, we're short on time, so I'll mention one last point if I can, Lisa, which is yep. statements of entitlement. Um, Section 201D of the legislation talks about the requirement to give statements of entitlement um, and what should be on them and um, also mentions that other information prescribed by the Secretary's rules should be included. Um, the Secretary's rules, amongst other things, state that the um, calculations for each session of care should be provided to a uh, to a family. And the immediate challenge which, which was raised after transition was that that information wasn't provided to services to be able to pass on. And so there's been a, um, a period there where they had to go away and sort out the IT so that that information could be provided to uh, services um, and that's been in place since, since December. So there's a number of, number of areas there in which there has been a bit of a mismatch between the uh, you know, the IT and the legislation or the rules um, and in some cases maybe quite material. Okay, can I just ask a more general question of you? As a software provider, how did it go? Was it all 
clear from the beginning what you had to do? Was were the uh, you know was it made up as it went along? Was it a nightmare for you, or was it fairly a fairly ordered process? Um, I realise that might be a hard question for you to answer. Well, it's fairly open ended. I'm just trying to think about how do I say uh, answer you quickly. That for your contribution as always Carl we're always um, pleased to have you on our podcast and um, look forward to interviewing you perhaps in more detail about all things software and childcare subsidy at a later date you're welcome anytime and good luck getting it down to five minutes (laughs) thank you And now I have with me Laura Spoltelli. Laura is the Children's Services Manager, is that your title? Uh, yes, Children and Family Services Manager. Children and Family Services Manager at Fairfield Council. And you run um, a number of uh, early learning services. And uh, here at the podcast, we thought it'd be interesting just to see how a local government handled the transition. So talk to me. Was it traumatic or was it easy? Oh, look, I I definitely wouldn't say it was easy. Um, It was bordering on traumatic in the days leading up to July 2. Um, But I guess at the end of the day, we did get over the line, even though there were times where we didn't actually think we were going to get over the line. Um, It did feel a lot like um, the blind leading the blind in many respects, but I have to try and spin the positive as well and we, we did get there and we all breathed a big sigh of relief once we got there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did. So what were the hard bits? What could they have done to make it easier? What could the department have done to make it easier? Or departments for that matter? Yeah, look, I think the problem for us when we reflect on how quickly the implementation came around um, I think that there needed to be more leading time because I guess there were two, two, two aspects to the transition. You know, not only were we all trying to get our head around a lot of new 
um, terminology and language. We didn't, and we didn't get really enough time to then consider the impact on our policies and procedures. Like we had to deal with that after the transition. Um, but there was also the technical stuff going on in the background. We had to, you know, suddenly become familiar with this portal and Proda and that had its own issues. So I think firstly, more leading time would have helped um, for, from, a, from a provider perspective. That's probably the first thing I'd say. Yeah, sure. And then um, in terms of, like, the actual support that was provided, I mentioned it was a bit like the blind leading the blind. Um, it just, yeah, there just wasn't enough com- messaging and communication to providers. Um, and we also weren't uh, privy to what families were being told and often families would come to us and that was a whole other issue because then we didn't have the answers for them. So, yeah, I could go on and on, Lisa. So, one of the things that someone has said was that it was almost like services had to do a lot of the communication with families um, and they didn't expect to have to do that. We, we definitely felt that, but we also worked out very quickly that we didn't want to bombard families with information and communication from us. So we very much took the approach, business as usual, um, and from a provider perspective, we really only delivered information to families on a need-to-know basis and when we identified that there were risks to families. So we just felt like we were suffering and the transition was more about us than them. Um, but we, like, we, so I mentioned if we identify the risk to families, we were very concerned about people not understanding the implications for their hours, particularly those that were on 24 hours a week, yeah. where before they didn't have to really demonstrate anything to get that 24 hours. And we don't think that families really understood that. So we put out some targeted communication because we wanted to make sure that they were in the best possible position to not lose their hours um, because we didn't think that was the messaging um, was from the government was about that. We, they didn't really understand the impact, but they were just messaging the system, if, if you know what I mean. And, Laura, you're in an area with a high English as a second language um, community. Yes. Did that create issues? Um, It certainly did in the sense that any documentation that the department released, like fact sheets and what have you, there was nothing provided in any language except English. Um, And then when we tried to provide that communication to the families, it would really fall on the centre directors to translate that information to the families and certainly not all my centre directors have the... um, the luxury of having staff that speak other languages in this team many do but yeah a lot of it did fall on the um the staff at the center to help them understand and that they sometimes themselves didn't understand what they were communicating because they were still getting their head around the system so we did try and limit the information um because we just didn't want families to feel the overwhelming feeling that we were feeling and we felt that was the best approach and it did work in the end and what about acts Oh, well, that was, the, um, that was a struggle to get our head around as well because we felt like the communication around that came a little bit late. Um, so they were just so focused on the call to action and getting parents to update their details in MyGov. And then when we finally got to transitioning to CCS, we didn't really know what to do with that in the beginning. Um, and when we would try and seek information from the department, you know, phones, you'd be on the hold for an hour, sometimes more, or you'd never get through. And, and again, it comes back to that issue of leading time. We didn't have enough time 
to change our policies and procedures. We ha- we really only dealt with it after the fact and when it actually became an issue. And did it mean that some of your families who were were eligible missed out? Um, we had a number of families that uh, were eligible for acts. I, I don't recall at the time if there were people that were missing out. I'd have to go back and have a look at the data from the time. But there were certainly gaps. So there were times where we were where we had children that we believed were eligible, and it took. There was one case I do remember. Um, it took up to two months for the approval to come through. So it looked like their account was owing thousands and thousands of dollars. But when it was finally approved. Um, obviously that was sorted out but we were never guaranteed that it would be approved so it was a bit touch and go for a while and did you have permission like you know could you was council prepared to cover that in in the hope that it would be knowing that it wasn't a hundred percent sure um look the thing the way that councils operate that we have set fees and charges and things are dictated by fees and charges and these are always determined by council so it would have to go through one of our council processes to do that it wasn't something that I had the delegation just to approve Um, it would have required a report to council and needed to be adopted by council but fortunately it didn't come to that Um, but who's to say it won't need that in the future sure yeah okay last question is I suppose compared to other processes that you've lived with in this sector like the implementation of CCB or the implementation of NQF. Do you think that this was done better or worse? Or uh, definitely not better. Um, certainly, when the NQF was brought in, there was a lot of money put into resourcing the support and ensuring services could understand the EYLF and the new um, national legislation and the NQS and we certainly didn't experience anything like that for the childcare package. Um, Throughout the entire process, support and information sharing always just felt like an afterthought and as I said, because of the scale and size of it and it it needed more lead-in time and the the webinars that the um, department put on are I don't think many people found them that helpful. They really just reiterated the information that they released. Um, you know, and there was also connection issues and all that kind of thing. But but no, certainly if you compare it more recently with the NQF, it was um, not as supported as, as, as others have been and it could have been much better. So that sounds like you're saying it was silly of them to actually um, uh, kill the professional support coordinators prior to implementing something of this scale. Well, it is kind of like that, isn't it? There was definitely the money there and um, we all know how hard our staff work and the services work and um, that's where they spend their time in their services, caring for children and and supporting our families and this was a whole thing in itself. And I actually uh, have to say I'm very fortunate that I am in a council service because the council, um, the local government children's services are very well connected and um, very well networked and we were supporting each other through this service and I can only imagine how challenging and how difficult it would have been for those standalone, standalone services that are not sure. as well networked. You know, I often was ringing my other colleagues from other councils asking for information because I couldn't get anywhere else. <laughs> yep. So... So, yeah, we certainly had to rely on our own um, information sharing to help with our transition. And can I just ask one final thing? What software provider were you with and were they helpful? Oh, well, 
we were actually with two software providers, which made the transition very interesting. Um, because we run family daycare, we had a different software provider, which was Harmony, yep. and we were using um, Hubworks and still are using Hubworks for our center base. And I, I will say that the experience with um, those two third-party providers were, were very different. Um, they were experiencing their own challenges, and you know they were relying on Canberra to communicate, communicate with them, and often their hands were tied. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, that's a whole other conversation. I think the software experience. <laughs> Fair but, enough. Um, but we definitely had two providers, and it made it very difficult. I'll say that much. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Well, look. Thank you much, Lee, for coming on to the podcast and sharing all of that with us. I hope you're going to put a submission in to the review that says those same things. Yes, I think the uh, councils are putting a collective response together. I think oh, that's the, uh, that's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Thank you Thanks very much. Bye bye. All right. Thanks to everyone who took the time to contribute to uh, those interviews. Um, we we yeah appreciate it. I think the the diversity of views that are on display and the the um the this was such a big you know sort of seismic change for the sector. I think it's 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 great that we're sort of seeing this look back in terms of um in terms of where the you know the sector was at at that time and you know hopefully lessons for the next major crazy change that is foisted on us by some government in the next ten or fifteen years. Was there a particular you know, thinking about all the interviews you did, Lisa, was there, a, you know, what was your sort of big, you know, takeaway from speaking to a range of people about this issue? Now, I think just the amount of time that all the services, like whether it was Good Start with the, you know, huge um, working party six months out or whether it was a council, you know, the council like Fairfield Council um, doing it or the software provider working to try and assist people, how much they all had to put into it. So how much of the policy implementation was reliant on the services helping families over the line as well as getting their own processes right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But can we just remind people that they can and need to put in um, submissions into this? It can just be a one-page letter saying... I thought this was bad because, or I thought this was good because, but remember, it's not about the policy, it's about its implementation. Absolutely, and I think the report is due to come to the to go to the government in November, and they're accepting submissions uh, up until around about mid May. But we'll have a link in the show notes on the episode page for this uh, on the on the page on the website for this episode. So yes, uh, the more people that contribute, uh, the you know the better the um, the review will be. So, but that's for it. sure. Yeah, that's it for this week. We will be back uh, next week with uh, another episode. Um, and we thank you for for listening and 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 continuing to enjoy the show. Uh, until next week, it's goodbye from me. And from me. And from Leanne in Absentia. <laughs> you have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leanne McNicholas and produced by Leanne McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyeduShow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyeduShow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.